As we enter into the new year, it has been a blessing to be with you in the book of Amos. It has a lot to say. It has a lot to say about the nature of the nation of Israel and about eschatology to come and has a lot to say in particular about the character of God that um, unfortunately the minor prophets are not often preached and they say a lot about the character of God that without them we would otherwise, I fear, neglect. Um, they speak very boldly, I think, about the same condition of the sons and daughters of Adam um, that afflicted the people of Israel and of Judah that are still afflicting the sons and daughters of Adam today. And one of the things that I think is so great about the Minor Prophets, and Amos in particular, is that it has forced us to look at a broad overview of the history of the people of Israel that is recorded in the Old Testament, and that is a large part of what we will be doing this morning as we get ready to press into the second half of the last chapter of Amos and Amos chapter 9, beginning this morning in verses 11 through 12, raising that which is fallen, part 1. Now, Amos had a contemporary and a counterpart in the southern kingdom of Judah in the prophet Jeremiah, who in chapter 25 and verses 4 through 7 of his prophecy wrote and said, You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, those saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil ways and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands and then I will do you no harm. And yet, you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Or, as the Lord would say to Amos in Amos chapter 1 verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. All of this occurs when a very partial God shows no partiality. For there is an anger that comes out of love stronger than any that comes out of hate. And so the Lord shakes that which is his. In Amos chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, he says, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations. Shake them as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Those who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. And yet, disaster surely overtakes and meets them. 
And all of the things that Amos prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II would soon come to fruition. This morning in the book of 2 Kings, in chapter 17, in verses 6 through 18, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, that being the northern kingdom of Israel. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the harbor, the river Gozen in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and a shirim on every high hill and under every green tree. And they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. They did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. They served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. And yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made a shearer and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And therefore... The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Because they did these things. Because they turned to the sin of Jeroboam who made these two calves and said, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. And having removed the standard of righteousness from their midst, fell into the madness of following their own hearts. Running after every God and every nation. Throwing their children to the fire. they might somehow gain an advantage. The Lord handed them over to the king of Assyria. 
and he drug them out with hooks in their jaws through the breaches. And none remained of Israel except for Judah only. And for a day, Judah would stand for a time. Further on in 2 Kings in chapter 18, beginning in verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, one of the rare kings among the latter kings of Judah that feared the Lord. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, the one who had drug off all of the northern tribes into captivity. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he took them. Now, if you look at a map of Israel, you will see, starting in the north, all of the northern tribes of Samaria that have fallen to Sennacherib. And then you will see the, the kingdom of Judah and the, the nature of its geography is within the kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem lies in the south. And all of the fortified cities stand to its north. And so Sennacherib came down and he conquered like a row of dominoes falling. One city after the other, after the other, after the other, until the northern kingdom of Israel was no more. And all that stood was Judah. And then the wave continued. And the northern fortified cities of Judah fell to the siege engines of Sennacherib, one after the other, after the other, after the other. Until his horde, which I think is probably a more proper description than army, until his horde was camped outside of the gates of Jerusalem herself. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and he took them. Can you imagine what it would be like if there was a wave that was coming and it conquered Minneapolis and St. Paul? Dayton and Chicago, St. Louis and Kansas City, all the way down till it was right outside your door. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish and said, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. And whatever you impose on me, I will bear. 
And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabashak, with a great army from Lachish to the king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shibna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the rabbi Shaka said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff. That broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And I would recall to your mind the Lord telling Israel that I have fixed my eye on you for evil and not for good. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the Rabbishakah, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. For we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the rabbi Shaka said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? And then... The rabbi Shaka stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. And do not let Hezekiah make you 
trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. And then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharam, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? The people were silent, answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. In the mouth of a good liar is much truth. And so he comes with a whole lot of truth. Has any of the gods of these other lands been able to hold my hand? Their cities burn. Their walls crumble. When the wind blows south, you can smell it. Is it not by the words of your own prophets that I have come? Is it not the Lord that has brought me to the gates of Jerusalem? All of this is undeniably true. It's exactly what the men like Amos and Jeremiah had been telling them would come. So to the point that they called the very nation and king that would be the one that would do it. And in the midst of this undeniable truth comes the leverage, the fulcrum point for the great lie. Because all of this is true, don't believe that your Lord can save you. And then the mounting deception. Was it not his high places that Hezekiah tore down? You see, the people had engaged in such a perverted, twisted, and deluded form of the worship of Yahweh that it seemed like 
both to themselves and from an outsider looking in, that the things that were being pulled down were actually the things that belonged to God, much the way today we have associated things of tradition with the actual worship of the one true God, that if we feel like they, they are being pulled down, that we associate that with an attack against God himself. When actually it is the Lord that is saying, that's not me, tear that down. Was it not Hezekiah that tore your own Lord's altars down, took down all the high places? Why do you think I'm here? The deception is strong. Besides, you don't want to die, do you? You smell the wind blowing from the north. You ever catch your hair on fire? I famously did it once upon a time. There was a there's a photo of it somewhere that somebody took just at the right time lighting a bonfire at Jason Kendrick's house where the flame was going all the way up, burned every bit of hair off my right leg. You can't wash that smell off. You ever smell chicken feathers burning? Human hair's worse. Man, I took like three showers. I still stunk. My sheets stunk. You smell the wind blowing from the north? That's the smell of your cousins and your aunts and your uncles as they burn on my pyres. This is what Sennacherib's word was to them. And the implication is, is do you want to burn too? And before you burn, I will seed you in such a way that you will be so parched of thirst that you will drink your own urine and you will be so hungry for food that you will eat your own dung. Now, do you want that? And he's up in their heads, guys. Like for real. He's got an army of 180,000 setting outside their gate. Like literally right over the wall. He hasn't done it once. He hasn't done it twice. He's done it hundreds of times. He's in their head so much that the officials look at his envoys and go, don't speak to us in the language that ever... Look, we know Aramaic. We know the we know the language of commerce. These people don't speak to us in that, and we will talk. We'll parlay. Don't let them hear what you're saying. Why not? They're going to be drinking their urine and eating their dung just like you. Should they not hear? Should they not fear? Such is the fulcrum, the the pivot point, the pressure of the lie. A lie that's based in an incredible amount of truth. 
And yet, Jerusalem would stand. God is good. And he is gracious to his people. In chapter 19 and verse 1, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Now here is a guy that at least knows one right thing to do. (laughs) Now look, if I can digress for just a moment, one of the things that we have a tendency to do is we want to take men and make fairy tales out of them. And so we want to have these heroes that are that are kind of, you know, the 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 pure, you know, long flowing kind of, you know, golden hair. They wouldn't have golden hair, they're all Jews, but you get the point, right? On 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 the white horse, probably an Arabian with its, you know, mane shod real tight and he's got the shiny armor on and all that kind of stuff. The reality is is that God saves sinners. That's the reality. And he sanctifies those sinners to make them in his image. And until the coming of the judgment seat of Christ, when sanctification gives way to glorification, that process will not be complete. And so if you're looking for a hero among men that is perfect, you will not find one. You won't find one. You will only find that in Christ. And when you see glimpses of it in the sons of Adam, it is because you are seeing the manifestation of the new creation of Christ in them. And so I say all that not to let Hezekiah off the hook because he really blows it, but to simply give us perspective of what the actual men of God look like. And so Hezekiah gets a lot of it right. He gets some of it wrong. He gets a lot of it right. And the first thing he does is run to the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shibna the secretary and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. Like I said, one of the things that's interesting about Hezekiah is that he's not fearful of the prophets like most of the kings are but he relies on them and they said to him thus says hezekiah this day is a day of distress of rebuke and of disgrace children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth it may be that the lord our god heard all the words of the rabshakeh whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord our God has heard. Therefore, lift up our prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Lord, through Isaiah, tells Hezekiah, I will be Sennacherib's undoing, and I will do it right between his own ears. 
I'll put a spirit in him so that he fears rumors that no man should fear. That he might return back by the way which he came. The Rabshakeh returned, found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he'd heard that the king had left Lachish. And now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, behold, he is set out to fight against you. And so he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the hands of the nations, have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who are in Telsar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Shepharim, the king of Hena, and the king of Ivah? I don't know if you can hear it or not, but the the dialogue that is going on in chapter nineteen of Second Kings is is not simply a dialogue that is occurring between human kings sitting on earthly thrones. This is a dialogue that is occurring between the spiritual realities that lie behind those kings. This is a a war that is playing itself out in the lives of men whose fundamental reality is occurring in the in the midst of heavenly beings when he said do, do not think to yourself that satan's house is not a house in turmoil it's like the mob oh they come to heal But their nature is disorder and deception and lies and they are stepping on each other all day long, clawing and biting, trying to get one seat higher up at the table. When he says, did any of the gods of these other nations, were they able to help them against me? He means it. And he sets his eyes and he fixes his gaze upon the one true God who has anointed Jerusalem. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, Above the cherubim. Not in their midst. 
but above them. From which many of the fallen have come. You are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. I love what Hezekiah is doing here. He's going to blow it in a minute. So don't get too high on him, but right here, man... I mean, this is turn all the knobs to 11, set the distortion pedal on high, and just give it to it. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to nations and lands. Man, he owns it. This is is the brilliance of Hezekiah at this moment. He sees the truth, and he doesn't shy away from it. You got to be careful with the deceiver. You gotta be careful with the deceiver because what we have a tendency to do is if you recognize they're a deceiver, then you want to think everything that they're saying is deceitful. And while it may be deceitful intent in intention, the reality is, is if they're good at what they're doing, a large majority of it's true. And if you want to lump it all into one category and say it's all a lie, they will make you a fool. This is wisdom. Hezekiah knows the truth. They have laid waste to everything they came against. That is absolutely true. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they are not gods, but they are the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now... O Lord our God, because this is true. See, here's the pivot. (laughs) He's not going to bite the bait. It's nice and shiny. It's always got a hook in it. He's not going to bite the bait. He'll stand on the truth and then he pivots away from the lie and to the assurance that the Lord provides. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You, O Lord, are God alone. You want to petition God where He listens? Petition God on behalf of God. Don't petition God on the behalf of yourself. Don't petition God on behalf of your children. Don't petition God on behalf of your spouse. Don't petition God on behalf of Mount Zion. Don't petition God on behalf of the Southern Baptist Convention. Don't petition God on behalf of the United States of America. If you want the Lord to listen, you petition Him on behalf of Him. Hezekiah doesn't say, do this for us. He says, do it for you. And then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. 
She despises you. Oh, man. When the word of judgment falls, baby, it falls. She despises you. This is the Lord speaking to who is at the moment the most powerful man on the planet. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypress. I have entered its furthest lodging place and its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters and I dried up the sole of my, with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? Huh. Yeah. It is amazing to me That the sons and daughters of Adam, those who were formed from the dust of the earth and who shall return to dust, would dream to contend with the sovereignty of a God who speaks the who speaks the very destiny of angels. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from days of old, what I now bring to pass. That you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like the plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in. You're raging against me. And because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. This shall be a sign for you. This year eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs of the same. In the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors, and the zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore, Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into his city or, or into this city or shoot an arrow there. 
or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Hezekiah beseeches the Lord that he would be act on his own behalf, and the Lord says, I will act on my own behalf. I will act on my own behalf, and I will act on behalf of those in whom I have been working. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrash, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Ishhadon, his son, reigned in his place. Hezekiah Samaria falls like dominoes northern Judah falls like dominoes Sennacherib comes as was foretold to the gates of Jerusalem and says don't believe that your God can save you you'll die like all the rest Were any of the rest of the gods of these nations able to secure them? Neither will yours. But if I can speak out of both sides of my mouth, the reason I'm here is because he let me. Hezekiah bows the knee and he pleads with God for the case of God. And God responds. What do you think it What do you think it smelled like? 185,000 dead bodies. And don't think for a moment that in their panic to return by which the way they came this Assyrians took the time to deal with the dead. 185,000 dead bodies in a land where a shovel will sink about a quarter inch deep before it hits rock. He sent him back the way he came. He sent him back to Nineveh. And you want to you want to go back to chapter 19? Verse 25, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from days of old, what I now bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. You understand that this is all the Lord's doing? You know, we we teach the book of Jonah far too often only to our children in Sunday school. Jonah and the big fish. 
You know, it used to be Jonah and the whale. We finally caught up enough to teach Jonah and the big fish, right? It's not a whale, it's a fish. What happens to Jonah? Jonah gets told to go to Nineveh to, to, to proclaim to them that disaster is coming if they do not repent and the city is going to be destroyed. And he hates the Ninevites. And, you know, we were told that when I was a kid all the time, you know, that, that the Jews didn't like the people of Nineveh. You know why they didn't like the people of Nineveh? Because they were Assyrians. And they did stuff like build siege ramps out of the heads of the last town they conquered. That's why they didn't like them. They were the vilest of pagans, heathens. A brutal people, bloodthirsty in every respect. We've already told the stories. It's shocking the things that they did. Of course they didn't like them. They were as pagan and heathen and demonic as they could possibly be. And so what does Jonah do? He doesn't want to go preach to those people. He would prefer that the Lord bring judgment on those people. So he jumps on a ship and he sails away. The Lord sends a storm. He finally convinces them that they're going to have to chunk him overboard if they all want to live. He gets swallowed by a big fish. Jonah dies. Right, you, know, you understand that? This is what the New Testament teaches us. Jonah dies. He is dead for three days in the belly of a fish and then God resurrects him and the fish pukes him out on the shore just outside of Nineveh. And so here you've got this prophet who I don't know what it looks like when you've been dead for three days, but I'm guessing you look pretty rough just kind of in general, not to mention that you've been in the digestive tract of a fish. And so there's all sorts of enzymes and acid stuff going on there. So, you know, your skin's probably sloughing off pretty bad. You look like you've been in the pool too long. He's got fish vomit stuck in his hair. And he stumbles into town and literally just goes, repent. And the Spirit of the Lord moves and they repent. Like the shortest sermon ever preached. Here's this crazy one i mean just like closest thing to a zombie you can get just dead a couple of hours ago now alive got fish vomiting in his hair saying repent and they all repent have you not heard that i determined it long ago do you understand if the lord had not ordained that Jonah come and preach repentance to them so that they would repent, that Nineveh would have been destroyed before these events occurred. He determined it long ago. Nineveh was going south too fast. They had to be turned because there was people there that were called according to his purpose in that day and age, and there was a purpose coming in a further day and age that they needed to be around for. And so here it is. And what was determined was I'll kill 185,000 of your best troops, send you back the way you came, and when you're worshiping your demon god in your temple in Nineveh, your own sons are going to put a sword in your back. The northern tribes fall. The southern kingdom of Judah stands. But it will not last. 
For the same thing that was being spoken by Amos in the north was being spoken by Jeremiah in the south. It was just a couple of generations later in its fruition in 2 Kings chapter 20. It says, In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. So after all of this has occurred, Hezekiah gets sick and the word of the Lord through the prophet is, you're going to die, buddy. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord saying, now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly and before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court the word of the Lord came to him turn back and say to Hezekiah the leader of my people thus says the Lord the God of David your father I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears behold I will heal you and on the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. You know, I, I think here it's, important to mention that the Lord God is our Father. And as fathers deal with children, the Lord often deals with us. And when he says, boy, if you do X, I'll kill you, the threat is valid. And so is the grace that comes along with it. And so here he tells Hezekiah, you're dead. And the Lord achieves exactly what he's going for. He provokes a response in Hezekiah. He prays with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind. And the Lord answers. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me? And what that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord and he brought the shadow back ten steps by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. And at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. A real quick historical note at this point. At this point in time, um, Babylon is a third string backwater hick country. But it's not going to be for very long. And what they're doing here, politically speaking, is sucking up 
to the kingdom, the only kingdom that has ever turned back the tip of the Assyrian spear. And so these folks want to be somebody one day, going to be somebody. And so they send envoys to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, to congratulate him on his recovery. And Hezekiah welcomed them. And he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. And then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, Why? What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Do you understand what is being said here? What is being said to him is, and, and look, this is where this is where you got to deal with the reality that the kingdom of God on this side of glory is made up of the fallen sons of Adam. Hezekiah got it so right until he got it so wrong. An envoy from Babylon shows up and he just can't wait after it was the Lord himself. Not, not one Jewish soldier grasped a spear. 185,000 were slaughtered by the Lord himself. They did nothing to earn this victory. Nothing. It's just like us. We talk about victory over sin, victory over death, that is salvation, that is the gospel. We did nothing to earn it. Nothing. Nothing. I prayed a prayer. Big deal. Big deal. God gave you a new heart that you would desire to pray it. God gave you a tongue that you could say it. He gave you the brain that allowed you to think it. He put the air in your lungs in a diaphragm that would push it across your vocal cords. He holds us together. He holds us together. We have no place to say this was of me. It's of Him. And so here's Hezekiah, and the Lord has done all of this of his own accord for his own glory to preserve the thing that he has promised to a people that he is calling apart from it to himself. And as soon as Hezekiah gets better, these hicks show up from Babylon, and he's like, look at all the cool stuff we got. This is the stuff that my forefathers all the way back to David have been storing up in these storehouses, isn't it? Glorious. And Isaiah comes to him and he says, it will all belong to them. Everything you showed them, they will take. 
And while it will not happen in your day, it is not in the far off future. The very sons that you have born, they will take them and cut their testicles off and make them serve in the king of Babylon's court. You go, man, that's, that's pretty rough. You know, we got kids in here. <coughs> Is it not right for the men who sit on the wall to hear? Seeing how it is they that will drink their own urine and eat their own dung. Man, this is not a game. Not a game. The powers that are influencing this deal are deadly serious. Mom Francis used to do the church letter. used to stress her out real bad <laughs> every year she'd Cheryl has to do it now she'd call me she'd be stressed out and she was she was stressed out with good cause it it, it distresses me as well I'm not against record-keeping but historically, counting the troops is not really a good idea, <laughs> according to this. Not, not really a good idea. I'm all for, you know, being able to balance the checkbook, don't get me wrong. But, but when we start numbering the kingdom, I remember Francis saying to me one time, she said, well, it was right before, but she said, I just... I wish we didn't have to do this. And I said, Mom Francis, you know what? I do too. It's not about numbers. It's not about counting heads. It's not where the strength of the kingdom lies. The strength of the kingdom lies with the king. It's not what's in your treasury. It's not the stuff you can show off. If you get shown off too much, you may take it away. In 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 8, the Lord takes it away from Judah. So, it's not just the northern kingdom of Israel, but the southern kingdom as well. And that's important because we're coming back to Amos chapter 9 here in just a second. 
No, we haven't been there for most of the morning. We're coming back. And he's going to talk about restoring the booth of David, not of Abraham, and not of Isaac, and not of Jacob, but the booth of David that has fallen. <coughs> Chapter 24, verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Notice how the, the time frame of the kings is dwindling. He reigned for three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And at the time, at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, now, no longer, backwater hicks, new money hicks. <laughs> None like new money. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to that city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He chopped up Solomon's stuff. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor. Ten thousand captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. The king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000 and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. He wrecked their culture and their economy he took the most beautiful city on the planet and they call it the white city for a reason the only stone that you can build anything out of there is limestone and it's just it's full of gypsum and reflects whatever color the sun is at the time in the middle of the day it's brilliantly white at sunset it glows an incredible pink orange color he took the most glorious city in the world the one where the name of the lord was to be found where his presence was in the midst of his people the place that the place that that he spared Isaac when Abraham was going to sacrifice him. 
And he reduced it to ruin. All according to what God had declared beforehand would happen. And in Amos chapter 9, verse 11 through 12, in that day, which day? For behold, in verse 9, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebbles shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Okay, in that day, in that day, when they're shaken, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Now see, before, before you want to get off and start accusing the Lord, why would you do this from of old? Why would you send Jonah in order to cause the city to repent specifically so that they could last long enough to be evil enough to do the things that you have ordained for them to do as punishment against Israel and against all of Judah except for Jerusalem. Why would you do that? Well, hang on, because in this day when that comes is the day that he will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. And not only that in repairing its breaches and raising up its ruins, but also grabbing all of the nations, not a Jew, me, grabbing all of the nations in that who are called by his name. He will raise up the booth of David. The word here in the Hebrew is sukkah. And it means, at best, a makeshift dwelling. As a matter of fact, it, it's, it's so, the, the idea here, booth, is like if, if, um, oh, if you watch any of like the, you know, the, the survivor, not, not the show survivor, but like the, Survivor in the Wilderness type shows. What's the one? Alone? Alone. If you watch those, right? Got to get out there and you got to see how you can make it, right? First thing they do is they whack down some branches and get them a tarp and put them up a little something to keep the rain and the wind off of them, kind of get started on the first day. That's kind of what this is talking about. As a matter of fact, it's so kind of hard scrabble that, that oftentimes it gets translated as thicket. In Job chapter 38, verse 39 through 40, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie awake in their sukkah, when they lie awake in their thicket, when they lie awake in their makeshift dwelling? It, it gets used in Genesis 33, 17 as what Jacob built for his livestock when it says Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths, made thickets, made this sukkah, this makeshift dwelling for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place shall be called Sukkoth. 
And so, here in the mind of the Lord is, is, is David's dwelling place. And it, 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 it's, it's not the house that Jacob lived in. It's the, it's the shed. It's the pole barn that he made for his livestock. It's not the tent that Job dwelled in. It was the thicket that the lions bedded down in. And, and, and even the pole barn has fallen. And the Lord says, I'll rebuild it. You, you look at David and and, and, and don't hear me wrong because I, I don't want to dismiss David as being fable or legend because he's not. He was a living, breathing man just like me and you. But he has kind of an Arthurian quality to him, right? Like, man, he's the king. He's the king that comes with the sling and the sword and the lyre and, 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 and the word of God in his hand. And he subdues the Philistines and... And he unites not only the clans of Judah, but all of Israel, right? I mean, he, he is the king. He is, he, is, he is the king whose throne will stand forever through whom the Christ will come. He's the guy. And the Lord looks back across all of the history of Israel and Judah, all the way back to David, and he says, his pole barn collapsed. And we look at it and we, we, see, we, we see the shepherd king and we see his son Solomon in all of his glory. And we think about the temple that he built in, and, and the golden age, as it is called, of Judaism. And the Lord said it was a thicket. It was a pole barn and it wasn't even a good one. It wouldn't stand. The last king you had lasted three months. 90 days. And then we made him a eunuch and sent him to Babylon. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore the booth of David. And here's the crazy part. Like I said, this, this sermon is just groundwork. Here's the crazy part. When God's done restoring it, it won't be a thicket anymore. For this is the word of the Lord that came to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's not about a thicket or a pole barn. That's what it was. And it fell down. But that's not what it's going to be. For when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all. All that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. 
But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house for me of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. If I may paraphrase, I took you from the thicket. I have, may, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. David came and said, what am I doing? Hey, look, once again, complex creatures. Imperfect creatures. David has a noble desire in his heart. It is a noble desire. How do we know it's noble? Because the Lord said it was noble. Right? So David says, he looks around and he goes, Man, I've got this sweet house out of, made out of cedar. Any of y'all got a house made out of cedar? You might have some cedar siding. You might have a cedar closet. You don't have a house made out of cedar. It's made out of pine, just like mine. You couldn't afford it if it was made out of cedar. (laughs) Neither could I. David had a house made out of cedar. Not the cedar you get out of the woods around here. Cedar of Lebanon. It's like saying that you have a house made out of the giant redwoods in Northern California. (laughs) I bet it smelled great all the time. And he gets to looking around. He's like, man, I've got all this stuff. And he's kind of getting a little guilt going. Not only does, you know, the, not only does the Ark of the Covenant reside in a tent with the Shekinah glory and the presence of God above it, but it's been in a tent that's been being drugged all over the wilderness for like the last couple of hundred years. It's a little bit of a rough deal. He says, he comes to the prophet. He says, this is what's in my heart. And he says, do whatever's in your heart. Because generally speaking, all of these things are good. But there's a difference between what is generally good and what God specifically ordains. Not the same thing. 
And so while there's a lot of general good that can be done, there is something for you and for me at every single moment that God has specifically ordained for that moment for you and for me and for David. And so the word of the Lord about specifics comes to the prophet. He's been speaking in generalities. Yes, that would be a good thing to do. That is a noble thing. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, listen, tell David that's a noble thing, but not for you. People say, oh, I know why. He's got so much blood on his hands. David was a bloody guy. Yeah, David was a bloody guy because God told him to go be a bloody guy. Here's something for you to do. He says, this isn't it. It's not for you. It's going to be for your boy. You know, man, it's disappointing. No, it's not disappointing. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the greatest thing that God ever said to David. Greatest thing he ever said to him. He said, you want to build me a house. That's great that you want to do that. You don't get to do that. Let me tell you something. I'm going to make you a house. And he doesn't mean I'm going to build a house for you to live in. He means I'm going to take you, David, and produce a house out of you and it's not going to be a thicket because the thicket if you leave it to its own it's going to fall down but i'm going to take that which is just just trash can you call it white trash if you're jewish i guess not right I'm going to take this, 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 this just, just hard scrabble, rough, slap together, shotgun shack that can't even stand on its own. And we've proved it over the course of generations of kings. It can't stand on its own. I'm going to raise it back up. And when I raise it up, I will do what I promised to David of old. It will not be a shack. It will not be a thicket. I will make you a house. Moreover, the Lord declares that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come out of your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, there's some dual imagery here. Part of this speaks of Solomon, but I would have you note that the statement that is being made by God says that after you are in the grave, then I will raise up your offspring. What is clearly envisioned here is not Solomon, at least not primarily. It is Christ. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with these words, in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. In that day, 
And that day when Israel is shaken, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. I will raise up the thicket. I will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins. Rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Friends, I would tell you that that is happening right now. That right now he is repairing its breaches. Right now he is raising up his ruins. That right now he is building a temple made of living stones. Not just of David but of all of the nations who are called by his name. Every soul that believes, every soul that confesses, every soul that is given the gift of faith, every soul that bows the knee is one more block in the wall. Soon it will be complete. And when it's complete, he's done. He's done. You may build a house and have a pile of bricks left laying off to the side. That's not the way he operates. Every one has its place. When he's complete, it's done. And so what I tell you is this. Be one. Be one. Be one of those blocks. Repent, believe, confess, turn your heart to God. Run to Christ that you may know salvation. Because this God is the one that makes living stones out of former enemies, children out of his adversaries. He's also the same God that kills 185,000 in one night. Be his. Don't be against him. You won't win. You won't win. Run to him. Believe. Be saved today. Not for your sake. For his glory. Man, he's going to have it. He spent a lot of time in Amos building up to the glory at the end. I'm excited to be in the glory at the end. Let's pray.